Yeah, so this is a really sweet time of the year for a lot of reasons. The, the Advent season, we're looking forward in hope and in joy. And also, coupled with that is in churches that preach through books of the Bible, you either, A, take a, a break from that book, or you've just finished the book right before the Advent season. And, and we've done the, the latter of those two. And what that allows us to do is just take a few messages and just focus on Jesus. Focus on Jesus, who is the root and the source of our joy. He is the root and the source of our hope. Whenever I preach this time of year, I have this, I have this line from a very well-known Christmas hymn at the back of my mind. Whenever I'm preaching around Christmas, and it's very simply, come, let us adore him. And, and my hope this morning is that we will adore Christ and we will grow in our love for him and our trust in him as we look at his word. And today we're going to look at it by going back into the Old Testament and examining a prophecy that was made um, by Christ and about Christ. So having said that, I would invite you to turn to the 61st chapter of the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 61. If you have a pew Bible, page 620. Isaiah 61. And we're only going to read the first three verses. So it's not a long read. There's a lot of words, but in terms of verses, there's not a tremendously long passage to read. So beginning in the first verse of Isaiah 61. Hear the word of the Lord. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, the, the picture of Christ here is so rich and powerful, and it applies to every person in this room right now. And I pray by the power of your Spirit, Father, that you would show us exactly how Christ applies, how Christ is sufficient, how Christ is all-glorious, no matter what state of life we come here in this morning. Believer and unbeliever alike. Believers who are walking in joy and believers who are just struggling. I pray, Father, in Christ we would find his sufficiency for the moment. 
and you would apply the good news about our Christ to where it was most needed this morning. Fill me now with your spirit, Father. Less of me, more of you. Just, just, just use me to communicate whatever you will to whomever you will in whatever way you will. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Very daunting book to poke your head in, if I may say. Three, we'll look at this in three parts. You can call it an outline, but you know I hate outlines, so I don't call it an outline. But it's kind of an outline. First part is just going to look at the prophecy itself. Then we're going to look at the fulfillment. And, and for that, I'm going to have you, at that, at that time, turn to Luke chapter 4. So you can kind of maybe get your finger there or put a ribbon there. Or I don't know what you do if you have an electronic piece of equipment. You just push a button there. I don't know what you do. And then lastly, I want to talk a little bit about how this passage can apply to those who are in Christ in a sanctifying sense. So first, the prophecy itself. And, and it's, again, it's hard to jump into Isaiah because it is a mammoth beautiful book. Here's the oversimplified three parts of Isaiah. And, and if, if any of the ABF teachers who are teaching Isaiah have problems with this, come fight me. I, I don't know, because I don't, I don't have time to draw this out, but three simple parts. And if I, this is how I break it down very simply in my mind. So chapters 1 through 39 are, are the people in his day warning them of Syria is coming. Chapters 40 through 55 is, is the, the future, the future for Israel, comforting those who will be in the Babylonian captivity. And then the third part, 56 through 66, is further in the future, talking about this glorious time past the Assyrians, past the Babylonians, where there will be a victorious gathering of God's people a regathering, a new people, and then eventually a new heavens and a new earth and the experience of the presence of God forever. And it's in that last section that we find ourselves today, this glorious gathering, this glorious gathering of a new people of God heading towards a new heavens and a new earth. And this is all going to center on a person. And as we turn to Isaiah 61, it is that person who is doing the speaking. Verse 1 says this, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. It's a very Trinitarian. Spirit, Father, Son. The Messiah, the Anointed One, will have the Spirit of God resting upon him. Isaiah builds his story about this coming Messiah. He will be a servant. He will be a suffering servant. He will be a new covenant in and of himself. And he will be a Spirit-endowed Messiah who will do mighty things such that the world has never seen and I want you to notice as you look at Isaiah 61, the people groups to which this Messiah will come. Look at these people groups. Those who are poor, those who are brokenhearted, 
those who are captive, and those who are bound. Brothers and sisters, if we look at that and ponder that for a moment, we can see the heart of our God on display. It isn't to the rich. It isn't to the proud. It isn't to the masters. And it isn't to the free that this spirit-sent, spirit-endowed one is coming for. And we have to take a moment and take a step back and understand how Scripture uses terminologies. And there certainly, there certainly are literal, physical outworkings of this. So in Luke's recounting of the Sermon on the Mount, he'll say things like, blessed are the poor. Doesn't say in spirit like Matthew does. And a little bit later, so woe to those who are rich. So there are literal fulfillments of these things, examples of these things, but the primary emphasis is on the spiritual. In a spiritual sense, those who are poor. In a spiritual sense, those who are brokenhearted. In a spiritual sense, those who are being held captive. In a spiritual sense, those who are bound. That's the one Messiah will come and proclaim the good news of him. And I want you to look at in the passage what this coming one will do. And this is where I just want to stop and I want to ask the Spirit of God to help us to adore him. Because what he came to do is glorious. This coming one will bring good news. He will bind or heal those whose hearts are broken. He will proclaim a way out of captivity. He will swing open prison doors. He will proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He will proclaim the day of vengeance of our God. He will comfort those who mourn. He will replace the ashes on the head of mourning with a beautiful headdress. He will pour out oil of joy and gladness upon those who mourn. He will make his people oaks of righteousness. In other places in Isaiah, righteous or oaks, oaks are used for people that are practicing false religion. Here, they will be oaks of righteousness. Oaks of righteousness that will be used mightily to build, to raise up, and repair. One commentator says this, the reality is the new life into which the anointed one will bring his people will be known for them being healed, being comforted, being clothed, and being rooted. That's what this coming one will do. And if we had to look at and sum up what this coming one will do, we could sum it up in one word. Although there could be many, but I'll choose one. This Messiah will transform those who are his, he will transform. 
and he will gather those whom he transforms into his people. He'll take the nothing. He'll take the low. He'll take the brokenhearted. He'll take the outcast. He'll take the throwaways. And he will transform them. He will make them righteous. And he will use them to build his kingdom. This. Uh-oh. This is the one whose birth we are preparing to celebrate. Who is this one? Well, standing here on the other side of the cross, on the other side of the empty tomb, Bibles in our hands, we know who this one is. It's the Son of God. Very God of very God taking upon himself humanity, truly God and truly human, being born of a virgin. And we know from all the prophecies coming together from the Old Testament, it can only be him. Now I'd invite you to turn over to Luke chapter 4. If we follow Luke's recounting, of the life of Christ. After the birth narrative, we see Luke capturing the Holy Spirit descending upon Christ at his baptism. We see the Spirit-endowed Messiah defeat the enemy defeat the tempter in the wilderness. Then he comes into a town in which he was brought up, a faithful Jew going to the synagogue on the Sabbath. And he's given the opportunity to read. And what does he read? He reads Isaiah 61. And you'll see it in your Bible, so we're not going to necessarily reread it all, but in verses 16 through 21, we see this recounting. He reads Isaiah 61 with a, with a little bit of Isaiah 42 thrown into it and a couple of omissions from Isaiah 61 incorporated. He rolls up the scroll, gives it to the attendant, he sits down, and in verse 21, he says, Today... The scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. He is the one. This one whose birth we are preparing to celebrate. And we know once again that physical things are often pictures of spiritual things. So when it talks about the poor, it's not just the literal poor. It is those who are poor in spirit that Messiah comes for. He says as much in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. Those who don't believe that they possess, that they are rich, I am rich with righteousness because of what I do. It will be those who recognize that apart from God, they're absolutely bankrupt, 
and their only hope is the mercy and grace of God. Liberty or release from captivity. It's fascinating if you were to look at the Septuagint translation of Leviticus 25, which describes the year of Jubilee. You will see the same word translated, translated liberty or release used 25 times. Excuse me, 15 times in chapter 25. And the year of Jubilee is where there's a forgiveness of debts. Slaves are set free. And that's the imagery Christ, through Isaiah, brings with him. The release of debts. When we get to the New Testament age, particularly in Luke and in Acts, but in other places, it's most often language that is tied to the forgiveness of sins. Ephesians 1, 7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, the release of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Paul says it's in this Christ whom we have redemption, the forgiveness or release of our sins, Colossians 1, 14. The discharge of our debt would come through this Messiah. The debt whose wages are death. If you come to this Messiah by faith, this anointed one, this Christ by faith, your sin will be forgiven. The debt you have to God for your rebellion and your law-breaking every time you've broken it and rebelled will be discharged by this Messiah. Come, let us adore him. He speaks of giving sight to the blind and we know throughout the New Testament gospel accounts, Christ is giving physical sight to the blind telling us a lot of things. Number one, that this one, Christ, he made those eyes. And he's God over those eyes. And if he wants to make those eyes work, he can do it. And it's also a sign that the kingdom, something special has arrived in Christ. The blind are given sight, the lepers are cleansed, the dead are raised telling us that the king of the kingdom has appeared and the kingdom has arrived. And yet, we know there's spiritual. In 2 Corinthians 4.4, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Apostle John in his first epistle, but whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. This Messiah will come and open the eyes of the blind. So now we can behold God's glory. We can see Christ for who he is. We can see ourselves for who we are apart from God leading us to confess we need 
you in coming to him by faith. You give sight to the blind. He will free from oppression. Same word as release earlier. Paul uses the same word in Acts 26, 18 when he's talking about the ministry he was given at his conversion by the Lord himself to open their eyes so they might turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. There is a release. There is a release from a captivity from the grip of the evil one. There is a release from the power. This is Ephesians 2 talk from the, the power of the age of this world. This one came to do that. This one came and proclaimed the day of God's favor. It's a length of time. The gates of grace and forgiveness are open through this Messiah, through this Christ. And you must not reject him. This is the one whose birth we are propelling, preparing to celebrate. And once again, I say, Spirit of God, help us to come and adore him. The one, help us to adore the one who has shown us our spiritual poorness. Help us to adore the one who has opened our dead blind eyes. Help us to adore the one who has paid our debts so that we may be set free. Help us to adore the one who has won the victory over everything that was and still tries to oppress us. Simply by trusting in the Lord's anointed. We do know when Christ is, is reading Isaiah 61, he stops before in the day of vengeance of our God. There is a sense that, that the, the time, the, the day of vengeance or the time of vengeance has arrived in Christ as the full and final revelation. The only way out of the mess has arrived if you reject him, that is to your condemnation and to your judgment. I believe ultimately... The fact that Christ does not read that here in that synagogue is because that ultimate day of judgment comes at his second advent. Now, and hear this, hear this, especially if you come here in unbelief. First, I pray that the Spirit of God shows you you're in unbelief. Because you just can't see it unless he shows you. Right now, the offer is freedom. The offer is forgiveness. The offer is righteousness. The offer is, is, is adopted into being a child of God. The, the offer is eternal life if you'll come to the Son. If you'll come to the Son. And for those of us who have all those things, freedom, forgiveness, a righteousness in which we're clothed in God's sight, children of God with God as our loving Father in heaven, in life eternal resting upon us. Come 
and let us adore him. This last, this last portion is more born out of like pastoring. And it's, it, it's a phrase that's in Isaiah 61 and it's just been on my mind for weeks as I minister to folks. And it is the phrase that this Messiah will proclaim liberty to the captives. And as we talked about primarily, that is talking about a salvation sense. You are captive to sin. You are captive to death. You are captive to the evil one to do his deeds until Christ frees you. But is there a sense, I want to ask myself, and you just get to be part of the conversation, so welcome. Is there a sense that we battle captivity as we walk with Christ in a sanctifying sense? I would say, yeah, we do. So we know Paul in Colossians 2.8 says, see that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. So, so there it's, it's, a, it, it's, all right, well, there's all sorts of, the Christian faith is being permeated with philosophies and traditions that are actually taking us away from the purity of the gospel, diluting it in some ways, and, and, and that could take us captive. I would also argue, though, believers are battling other sorts of captivity. Some battle against the captivity of anxiety in a very real way. We know that this is an issue because if you look at particularly chapter 6 of the Sermon on the Mount as recorded by Matthew, he is saying several times, do not be anxious. So that tells us there's something remaining in our fallenness that drives us to anxiety. As we live in a world that is actually wired to try to make you anxious. We're familiar with Paul's words in Philippians 4. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. So anxiety, this fear, this fear can be a captivity that Christ can release you from, came to release you from. Or, here's another one. And I see this a lot as well. Thanks for visiting my office this morning. This is really sweet. People who are in captivity to absolutely despising this time of year. It wasn't long into my pastorate before I realized that not everybody's childhood in regards to Christmas looked like a Norman Rockwell painting. 
lot of times, childhoods were rough. Family situations were rough. Families were broken and divided. Families fought for, who are you going to spend Christmas with? Let's make sure the ledger's perfectly balanced. In the middle was the child getting torn apart by such things. And the pressure of this American Christmas where mom and dad and four kids in matching sweaters go by the sleigh and they have the professional, that pressure to not have that becomes a captivity. Maybe this is your first holiday without someone close to you. And the answer for those things is found in Christ. We don't root ourselves. This is hard. This is hard. I, th this isn't like, oh, I understand. Now, Pastor, I flicked on the switch. Much joy. But what we have to do is we have to recognize our joy is not ultimately in the celebration of Christmas. It's in Christ. And I've got to fight through whatever is weighing me in terms of expectation that I feel I can't measure up to and there's dread, I have to fight through to come to the Christ. He came for just such a reason if we'll come to him by faith. For those who are struggling with loss, how many times in Isaiah 61 is mourning referenced? He comes for those who mourn. We know it's there's a spiritual sense mourn over sin. Amen. But there's also mourning in terms of a brokenheartedness that is mentioned in Isaiah 61 as well. Then there could be some not-so-deep things that are just as insidious. We could be in a captivity to money, to a middle-class lifestyle. We could be in captivity to sports. We can be in captivity to almost anything. Things that want to creep in and harness us and steal the joy that Christ came to bring. And our instinct in those moments is to run away from Christ. If I'm struggling with the season, I don't want to be around the season. If I've lost my loved one, I don't want to be there. I want to be by myself. And I would say, no. Messiah came for just such a reason. Run to him. Cling to him. Trust him. He's the one who created you. He's the one who took on flesh. It is a compassionate Savior and High Priest. He is the one who helps us break out of that captivity by constantly coming to him. Coming to him in his, in his word. Coming to him in prayer. Coming to him through meditation on the word. Seeking to conform our minds. Saying, okay, what, am I, what wrong thoughts am I believing about God here that's causing me to respond this way? And we need to ask God to help us through his word and spirit to correct those thoughts so I can enter into the fullness of joy brought by Christ. Doesn't mean we don't hurt but there's a bulletproof quality to it that whatever circumstance we're in, we can fight our way to joy because it's rooted in Christ, not the circumstance. This is the Messiah that came for just such a thing. 
through the power of his indwelling spirit. And this is the beauty of God calling the lowly and making them a people, but not making them a people of disconnected, disparate, free agents, but making them a body. Making a body that is a royal priesthood. Priests would bring and connect people to God. And what we do as a body who has been rescued by this Messiah and indwelt by his spirit and welcomed into this kingdom and brought into this body is we bear one another's burdens and we bring our brothers and sisters to Christ in any and every situation, helping them break free of the things that hold us captive even after we are born again. We bring them to Christ because we love them. We want them to flourish in the faith. He, he, he is the one who leads us out of captivity to sin, to death, to the world, to anxiety, to seasonal dread, to the middle class American dream. Whatever it is, the answer is found in him. And the pathway out is faith in him if we come and keep coming to him by faith. This one, keep saying one, one, this Christ, whose birth we are preparing to celebrate is the one, the only one, powerful enough to give us full and final victory over all these things. As the babe in the manger, as the spirit-endowed Christ, the suffering servant, as the risen Lord, as the interceding high priest, and as the one who promises to come back for us someday. This is our Christ. Come, let us adore him. Let's pray together. Invite the musicians and those who are helping serve the supper to join me. Father in heaven, I just ask that you would help us right now further behold your glory. Glory of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Father, we are finite creatures. We have, we have finite capabilities. We, but Lord, you have created us to enjoy you and enjoy your glory. And as we, as we focus on the great act of love and grace and mercy that you've displayed by sending your Son, Spirit endowed to free us, to forgive us, to pour oil of gladness upon us, to be sufficient for any and every circumstance we encounter. We give you praise and we give you thanks. And we just ask that you would help us further behold your glory. And it would change us. It would change us. Father, we commit these things to you now with much hope.
their hope is firmly rooted in Christ, the one. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.